And Lord, as we look in Malachi this morning, I pray that you would encourage us as well as challenge us about the long haul and the road ahead and honoring you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. My family has thought I've been sick this week, and I told them I've just been to the lofty mountain, and my uh, my voice is uh, a little under the weather because of my high-altitude climbs this week. So if my enthusiasm seems a little less this morning or my voice a little lower, it's not because of the company or the passage I'm in. We'll be in Malachi 3 this morning. And you know, if you're a parent, you've almost certainly heard this phrase from your kids, that's not fair. You're no fair. That's not fair. You've never heard that, have you? You've never said that. Or if you're a child or if you're a young adult, maybe, and you're at school and you get your test back and you see the way the teacher marked you down, your first thought or your first words might be, that's not fair. That's not right. That's not just. If you remember two or three teachings back, we were in Malachi 2 and 3, and we talked about this issue of justice, fairness, equity. Was God just? Would he judge? And and in this passage, the way this treated justice, fairness, was that the Jews were saying, hey, God, come and judge now. And God says, well, that's probably not what you want because when I come to judge, I'm going to start with you. So be careful when you ask for judgment. But the question remained, is God fair? God says, don't ask for justice now because it starts with you, but that doesn't say what he's going to do. How is he going to sort these things out? Is he fair? The question remains, is God fair? And by the way, if he is, why doesn't life look more fair? Why doesn't life look just in your life or mine as we look around? If God's fair, if he's just, why why doesn't it look like it? Does God distinguish between those who do right and those who do wrong? Does he? Does he distinguish between the one who seeks to honor him and the one who doesn't? Is the life of the person who practices godliness, who makes it their goal to honor God and what they do and what they abstain from, is it qualitatively different from the people who don't? Just think about this. Is it? And if God does not reward those who try to please him in this life, what reason is there for trying to honor him? If God doesn't reward your attempt to honor him in this life, what motivation are you left with to deny yourself to put him first? What gives? Many of the Jews in Malachi's day took a hard look around and they came to this conclusion. God's not fair. Being righteous, doing the right thing doesn't pay. and We're out of here. We're not going to keep living like this because it doesn't pay. God's not fair, at least fair in the way we thought he was. We're in Malachi 3, verses 13 through 18. God says, your words have been arrogant against me. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? Answer, you have said it is vain to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning or a sense of sorrow or repentance towards sin or towards things that God would consider deficient before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, 
but they also test God and escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possessions, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve God. We're going to break this down into three things, the question and the passage. The first is, does God distinguish between the righteous and the unrighteous? When God judges, if he's fair, if he's just, when he judges, does he distinguish between the righteous and the unrighteous? We'll try and answer that first. Then we'll look at this two different responses to God, and then the last thing we'll look at is God's response to those responses. Okay, so is God righteous and just? Does he make a a difference between those who are attempting to honor him and those who aren't? How do people respond to God, and how does God respond back to them? This thing about does God distinguish in judgment, this is such a huge, 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 huge thing that we're just, we're not even scratching the surface here, and it's a very short tether. And I'm going to be out of Malachi for this, but it's a good passage. Um, Kind of Genesis 18. You can turn there if you want, but this will be very brief. When God comes down, Jesus apparently comes down in the form of a man with two angels. He walks up to his friend Abe's tent, and Abe welcomes him in, prepares a meal for him. They sit down and enjoy a meal, and God tells him, Abe, next year you're going to have a baby, baby boy. 24 years after the promise, he says, next year, Sarah, your wife's going to have a child. Abe's like, wow, great. Sarah laughs. You know the story. But after this promise, God says to Abraham, I'm going to go down to those cities down there on the plain where your nephew Lot lives, and I'm going to see if they're really as wicked as I've heard. Now, of course, God knows all things, and he doesn't have to go down to see what's what. But he tells Abe, I'm going down to check this out. Abraham understands God is saying, I'm going to judge these places if they're as wicked as it appears. So you remember the story. Abraham goes through this really finessing his way through with God through this Thing, well, Lord, would you destroy fifty? Would you destroy the cities if there's fifty righteous there? Then you destroy the righteous with the wicked. Is that what you're talking about, God? He says in uh, verse 23 of Genesis 18, <clears throat> "Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Far be it from you to do such a thing, God, your God. Far be it from you to do such a thing to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike." Abraham inherently knows, God, you can't treat the righteous and the wicked the same. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Now, Abraham is pleading with God according to the character he knows he has. God, you can't treat them the same. Your character wouldn't allow you to, to treat the righteous and the wicked the same, to make no distinction between them in judgment. And, of course, Abraham was right. Genesis 19, it came about when God destroyed the cities of the valley that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. You remember, God did bring judgment. Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of the plain, were cast down. They were totally destroyed. But Lot and his family were saved. Lot and his family were saved. God did make a difference, a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous. The unrighteous were reserved for judgment and the righteous were delivered out. Now Peter brings up this very story in this very passage in his second epistle. In 2 Peter 2, 7, 
Peter's wanting to encourage Christians who are having a tough go of it. And they're kind of maybe faced with some of the same dilemmas these guys in Malachi's day are. You know, what gives? We're persecuted. We're cast down. Life's tough. Is God fair? Peter says in 2 Peter 7, and by the way, he's just mentioned God judging angels and judging the world in Noah's day. He says in verse 7, if he, God, rescued righteous Lot, who is oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Second Peter goes back to Genesis 18 and 19 and says, yes, with Abraham, God distinguishes between the righteous and the unrighteous when he brings judgment. When he performs justice, when he makes everything fair, so to speak, he distinguishes between the righteous and the unrighteous. He does. Does God distinguish? Yes. Is God fair? Ultimately, absolutely. In Psalm 1, let me wind down this thing about does God distinguish the righteous and the unrighteous. Psalm 1 is a great psalm. It's a lovely psalm. Many children memorize it. Most of what we think about with Psalm 1 is the first stanza. How blessed or how happy is the man who doesn't walk in the way of the wicked, doesn't stand in the way of sinners, doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers, his delights in the law of the Lord, etc. This blessed, happy, fruitful life. What does the second stanza say? The wicked are not so. The wicked are like chaff which the wind drives away. You remember in Israel's time, we don't think about this, when you take your harvest in their day, what did you do? You take it up to the hilltop where there's a breeze. And the cattle or the mules pull a heavy sledge over that grain. It breaks the chaff from the, from the berry or the wheat or the barley. And they throw that mix up in the air. And what happens? The wind on top of the hill blows the chaff away. The heavy grain settles back down to the floor. The wicked are not so, they're like chaff which the wind blows away. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. When God judges, the wicked will not stand. Nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Does God distinguish between the just and the unjust? Yes. Does he distinguish between the righteous and the unrighteous? Yes, he does. God does judge, and when he judges, he does distinguish between those who seek to honor him and those who don't. The difficulty with most of us in relation to this question is not, is God inherently just? And does he distinguish? But it's a question of time. It's a question of when he performs the judgment. And as you know, this is another matter entirely. God generally in the ways of life and the world, God generally lets things run their course, and he has his own sovereign purposes and reasons for doing so. And so then the issue for many of us is not that is he's not fair, but it's not fair on my timetable. He doesn't distinguish between the righteous and the unrighteous on my timetable. That view, though, is short-sighted, as we'll see here in a little bit. Um, Revelation 20 John says, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence. There was no place for them. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. John says, no matter what the lives of these folks look like, it says the great and the small 
When it says the dead, I believe this means spiritual. I believe none of these people at this judgment seat are saved. They're, they're all condemned. And when the books are open, their life is revealed for what it was, and God judges accordingly. So even if in their lifetime somebody might have looked around and said God's not fair because look, look at the success and the, the bounty and the plenty they're enjoying in their life. And I'm trying to honor God and look at my life. Well, God says, well, you know, short term it may not look fair and just, but this is where this thing ends. God's absolutely just. Because when they come to the end of their lives and stand before him, he gets out the books. And you know, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like an accountant in a ledger. You just let the facts speak for themselves. And God opens the books. And he says, well, this is what you did. And so, this is what you get. It's, it's absolutely just. It's absolutely righteous. God is just, and he is fair, and he rewards faithfulness, and he punishes evil. He will judge, but for the most part, his judgment is reserved for the end of a life or the end of an age or the end of a thing. In Malachi's day, people are looking around, they're saying God isn't fair because some who did right got tough times, hard life, and those who did wrong looked happy and successful. And it was this apparent unfairness that was hard to take. And then there's going to be two different responses to that. But you know, uh, you can look around the world today and you see people, you know personally, not only are they not Christians, but you might say, boy, they're they're the lowest form of life, you know. They're unfair, they're unjust, they're liars, scoundrels, perjurers, whatever. Go through whatever list you want. And you say, but look at them. Got a gorgeous wife or they've got a successful husband or they make lots of money or they live in a big house or whatever. And you're rubbing your head trying to make sense of it. That's what these guys are doing. They're saying, Lord, it doesn't pay. It doesn't pay. These guys who reject you, they're doing just fine. We're trying to honor you, and we've got a tough road. What gives? Well, there's two responses in this passage in Malachi. The first I'm calling the unbelieving response, verses 13 through 15. God says to them, your words have been arrogant. And why, why arrogant? You've said, God says, re-quoting, rephrasing them, it's vain to serve God. It's empty. It's meaningless. It doesn't produce anything. It doesn't give me anything when I serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts, mourning the appropriate things, the things God would mourn over as well? So now, this is our thought. This is our decision. We call the arrogant, the proud, the boastful, blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Now, you know, related to giving, um, Malachi had said, or God had said through Malachi, test me in this, in this giving thing. You know, in general, God says, and this comes up with Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, you don't tempt God. Who are you, finite little man, to test God? You don't do that. These guys are looking at the wicked and they say, essentially, they test God, they spit in God's eye, and what do they get? Bounty, plenty, success. They accuse God of inequity and they end up praising the proud because of their short-term, at least, prosperity. Because for now, anyway, their life looks pretty good. God calls these charges, though, arrogant. He calls the charges arrogant. Now, you understand their frustration, but he says their conclusion 
is arrogant. They concluded that crime, we could say crime paid, crime does pay, and that living for yourself was more desirable than honoring God. Probably all of us at some point have felt the same way. Lord, it's not worth it, and I'm just going to go do my own thing. God says of that viewpoint, though, it's arrogant. And You know, in the scriptures themselves, I've quoted Psalm 73, but let me quote it again this morning. Even if you're trying to honor God, you're faced with the same temptations and thoughts that these guys in Malachi's day were. Why don't I just live the way I want? Because it won't make any difference, but I'll get some things I want anyway. In Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph, he says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. I looked around, I looked at people whose lives I knew were morally deficient, but they were prosperous. These are the wicked. They're at ease. They've increased wealth. They're successful in business. Their life looks padded and plenteous. He says, it's in vain that I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. I don't have anything to show for it. I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. I've tried to honor God and I feel like I've had a whooping every day. They live as they please and they're on easy street. What gives? Now, God says if you stop right there and you say, God, you're not fair, it's arrogant. It's arrogant. Because we know ultimately, based on his character, God is just. Genesis, 2 Peter, Psalm 1. God is just. This view is short-sighted. And the psalmist, when he continues, says, I pondered to understand this. It was troublesome in my sight. I'm troubled, I'm anxious, I can't figure it out. And he says, until... I came into the sanctuary of God, and then I perceived their end. He's on his own trying to figure it out, and he says it makes no sense. But he says, then I came into the sanctuary of God. I came into God's presence, and then I understood the way things work. And if you read the rest of Psalm 73, it's his description of the end of the wicked. It's not a pretty picture. All of us are tempted just like this, just like the guys in Malachi's day, just like this psalmist, to, to look around and say, Lord, it doesn't pay. Following you, trying to honor you and put you in your things first doesn't pay. Because I've tried it and I get this whooping every day. I'm chastised. What gives? There's another response, which I'm calling the believing or righteous response in verse 16. And this floors me because it's so short. Malachi says, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. That's the righteous response. Those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. They feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Verse 17 says that describes them. But when it says, what did they do? This is all it says. They spoke to one another. Now, we've got to read a little something into this because of God's response. We've got to read a little bit something into this. They spoke to one another must mean something like this. They encouraged each other. Maybe they confessed and admitted to each other their frustration with the way things were, but that they were going to keep going on. They were going to continue to honor God. It has to mean something like this based on God's response to them. But all it says is they spoke to one another. That's all they did. You know, it's funny what it doesn't say. Uh, they didn't organize a rally or a demonstration before the high priest at the temple. They didn't write their congressmen or petition their local politicians. 
They didn't do mighty deeds and there was no national ad campaign. All they did is speak to one another to encourage or to exhort each other. Now, that's all they did. God's response to this. One group looks at God and says, we're out of here. Crime pays, we're going over there. We're tired of these whoopings, we're going to go live as we please and be blessed and prosperous with the rest of these guys. The other guys say, hey, we're tempted to feel the same way, but we need to keep going on. And then God responds. Now, see if my notes are right here. I don't think they are. Sorry, I didn't print my new pages. We're not going to look at God's response to the unbelieving because we'll look at that next week in chapter 4. He actually doesn't treat that here in chapter 3. We'll look at that next week in chapter 4. But in God's response to the faithful, um, the Lord gave attention and heard. A book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and esteem his name. And God says, they'll be mine on the day I prepare my own possession and I'll spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. All it says they did was they spoke to another and God goes through this little list of the things he's going to do for them. The first thing he says is, I've heard you and I've seen your faithfulness. You know in discouraging times, disheartening times, you feel like you're alone. And you feel like there's no use continuing because nobody knows the difference. You feel like you're trying to do right and nobody else even sees or knows or cares. And so God looks down at this group and he says, I've heard you and I've seen. It doesn't go unnoticed. It may go unnoticed in your neighborhood or in your family or whatever. But God says, I've heard it and I've seen. I know what you're doing in my name and my cause. And then he says, I've recorded your response. I've written it down so it can't be forgotten. Now, God's omniscient. And he knows all things, so he doesn't need to write anything down. But this is for our benefit. And you know, back at Revelation 20, when the dead come before him, you remember what he trotted out? The book. The book's not because he can't remember how these folks lived or what they did. It's for them. And he opens the book and he says, here it is. This is what you did. Well, related to these people, positively, God says, hey, I've written it down. I know I have heard it and seen it. I've taken a book. I've written your name down and I've recorded your faithfulness. So one day when you stand before heaven and you're tempted to think here and now it's for nothing, God will whip out his book and he'll say, you know, here it is. This is what you did. In Esther chapter 6, Mordecai, Esther's uncle, had done this great deed for the king, which nobody noticed. Do you remember this story? Nobody noticed. Mordecai saved the king's life and went about his life like it had never happened. But what happened? One night, old king Ahasuerus can't sleep. So he takes out the daily news. He takes out the record that was kept in his royal court. During the night, the king couldn't sleep, so he gave an order to bring the book of records, the chronicles. They were read before the king. It was found written that Mordecai had reported concerning Big Thana and Teresh to the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, etc. <clears throat> the king says, hey, I'm going to reward this guy. See, Mordecai's faithfulness was recorded in a book. And the king read it, and he said, this guy's act is not going to be forgotten. I'm going to honor this guy. I'm going to honor this guy. Sometimes we've got to wait for this. I'm not sure why I've got this note here, but I'll share it anyway. 
One time I had, uh, I was in my house, and uh, a daughter came in. I think I've shared this before. One daughter, this is years ago, a daughter came in and uh, said, Hey, Dad, uh, so-and-so is outside. Uh, She wants you to come see what she's doing. I said, Oh, great, you know, and I'll come out and just say, I'm in a conversation. And I continue talking, and my daughter comes back in and says, Dad, um, really, you've got to come out and see so-and-so. I'm trying to avoid all use of names here, as you can see. So-and-so, uh, what they're doing on the, you know, the jungle gym, the play thing. I, okay, okay, I'll be right there. And, you know, time goes on. And uh, the, last, the last message is, Dad, she says she can't hang on any longer. You've got to come out and see. So I go outside, she's hanging upside down. From the jungle gym, she's been hanging upside down for 10 minutes, waiting for me to come see, see, so she could show me her, her great feet. Now I remember. And sometimes you and I feel like we're hanging upside down, and we're kind of asking, is anybody going to notice? Is Dad going to come outside and see this great feat of prowess? Is he going to see my faithfulness? Is he going to see that I'm hanging in there, that I'm doing the right thing? And and many times, you know, we just feel like it's, it's not happening. No one sees, no one notices. God says, hey, I've heard it and I've seen it. And I've written it down. You're in my book. Your faithfulness is recorded in my book. He also says, <clears throat> I'm going to make you my special possession. Uh, I love the way the New King James translates it. He says, I'll make you my jewels. Or be like other phrases, you're the apple of my eye. This phrase, my special possession, is only used four times in the Old Testament. And it's always about Israel. It's not about stuff. It's about people. It's always about Israel. I think conveniently for Malachi, the first use is in Exodus 19. You remember Malachi keeps going back to the covenant to say, hey, we're in a covenant and you're supposed to be doing these things. And before God gave the covenant in Exodus 19, before the Ten Commandments are given, He says, if you'll obey me, you'll be my special possession. You'll be my treasure. You'll be my jewels. You'll be those things that I esteem above all others. So he says to this little group that just turned to speak to each other, to encourage each other to keep going, he says, you're my special treasure. You're my special possession. Unlike everything else, You're what I esteem. You're what I hold valuable, precious. You're it. And then he says, I'll spare you when judgment comes. That guys, right now you're living this life and you feel like being righteous or being faithful doesn't pay. But when the judgment comes, you'll be spared. I will distinguish between the righteous and the unrighteous. And when I come down in judgment, you'll be spared like my own chosen son you won't be subject to that judgment that comes I will make a difference between the righteous and the unrighteous you'll be treasured as my own son so this is encouraging to me I mean if you're one of these guys in Malachi's day and you just feel like it's for nothing we're trying to honor God and it's going nowhere God looks at him and says no I've seen it and I've heard it I've written it down. It's important to me. I'll never forget it. And when you stand before me, I'll open the book and I'll say, this is what you did. I didn't forget. You'll be my special treasure, my chosen possession. You will be spared judgment 
and you'll be my own special child. I'm going to close. I'm winding down with a passage out of Hebrews. This seems like a, a reach, uh, I grant you, but this is, this is almost a commentary on this passage in Malachi. Hebrews 12. If you remember in Hebrews 11, it's the Hall of Fame, the Christian Hall of Fame. He goes through this list of all these people who believed God in the past. And you remember it holds them up. These are kind of icons of faith. Abraham and Isaac and Moses and and, and it tells us that these were the guys that honored God. But do you remember, it tells us sort of what happened to some of them. Some of them were sawn in half. Some of them lived in caves. It didn't go well for them, just like the people in Malachi's day. In fact, it, it closes, it winds down with this thing. It says, they all died and they didn't get the promise. How encouraging. God made promise to them about a land and a kingdom. And it says, and by the way, they all died and none of them got the promise. Oh, thanks, Lord. I can go a long way on the road down on that. And then that's our introduction into chapter 12. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, these people that hung true when it was hard to do so in chapter 11... Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The writer to Hebrews is saying this, you're in a marathon, guys, and it requires endurance. And it requires such endurance and it's so demanding that you can't afford to hang on to things that weigh you down. So you've got to get rid of some things. Don't carry anything, no extra weight. And for us, that's sin. Sometimes it's thoughts that discourage us, that slow us down. Sometimes it's friends who slow us down. Friend. Sometimes it's people or activities or whatever that weigh us down in this marathon of life to stay true to the Lord in this life. But he says it is a marathon. It's not a dash. It's not over quickly. And it requires endurance. It requires endurance. And this is how you gain endurance. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. Instead of just looking around you, which is typically, this is how we get discouraged. I look around at my life, my viewpoint, my frame of reference, and I say, it doesn't look good. The writer to Hebrews says, look up. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for joy set before him did what? Endured. He endured his marathon. He endured the cross he despised the shame attached to that and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is not only the one who gives you your faith initially, but he's the model for your faith too. See, the writer in verse 1 says you need to endure, and then he says Jesus endured. He endured things we never will, will need to face. He endured this rejection from God, the sinless one being made sin on our behalf. He endured because he had his eyes up too. He had this joy fixed before him. He wasn't just looking at what was going on around him. If he had, he wouldn't have died on the cross. He would have come down. You remember they say, hey, if you're the Christ, come on down. He would have. But he had his sight, his eyes fixed on a joy. The joy set before him when he would be finished and he would be reunited with the Father and the Father would reward him for his faithfulness, for enduring the shame for finishing it out on the cross. God would say, well done, and would reward him. So he endured for joy. And then it says in verse 3, consider him, remember Christ, who endured hostility by sinners against himself. Why? 
so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. That's exactly what's happening in Malachi. They've grown weary. They were losing heart. They were discouraged. And so some of them were saying, we're out of here. It's not worth it. It doesn't pay. And the writer to Hebrews is reminding them, this is your temptation. Don't grow weary and lose heart. Remember for these Christians, if you read the rest of Hebrews, we've got it easy, guys. Whatever our discouragement looks like, it's nothing like what Christians around the world today face, and it's certainly nothing compared to what these guys face. Their lands were being seized. Their homes were being taken. They were being put in prison, and they were being executed. That's what this group of Christians that the writer to Hebrews was addressing, that's what they were going through. Much tougher than the guys in Malachi's day, primarily material deprivation. In this day, these guys, they noted that to remain a Jewish Christian may mean death. It could mean the seizure of their land. A tough, tough go. And the writer says, hey, don't lose heart. You've got to keep going. Verse 12, strengthen the hands that are weak, the knees that are feeble. Julie knows about this. If you're running... Marathon, cross country, make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but be healed. The thought is this, since you're in the marathon, if you've got some weakness, make the most of it. Heal it up if you can. Be healthy for your race. And run straight. Don't go left off the path and right off the path. In this marathon, it's tough enough. Go right down the middle. Make provision for your weaknesses so you don't stumble. This could mean what you do for yourself or it could also mean what we do for each other where we accommodate each other, we exhort and encourage each other in our areas of weakness. And then verse 15 and 16, see that no one comes short of the grace of God, that is, gives up, goes back, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. Now listen on this verse. Uh, many people quote this verse, and they say this is about a Christian not forgiving another person, and so they develop this bitterness. This is not what this passage teaches, though it's fine if you use it and apply it to that. It's not what it teaches. The root of bitterness here is disappointment with God. That's what this is. See, they thought being a Christian was going to look this way. And then they go down the road, and it doesn't. It looks this way. And their root of bitterness is they're doing what the guys in Malachi's day are. They're saying God doesn't pay. We're out of here. We're disappointed with God. We're embittered towards God because we thought it would be better and it's not. And we thought if we were a Christian, life would be rosy and it's not. And we thought if we got put God first in this life, he'd give us this happy, successful, materially blessed existence in this life and he didn't. And they're ticked, and they're angry, and they're embittered, and it's towards God. You've probably been, if you've been in a work environment, family environment, school environment, you know that bitterness and discouragement, you know how fast that can spread? I remember being in a, a place of work in the past in which the guys just routinely talked things down. You know what? In just short order... You'd find your own attitude. You'd be discouraged. Not because you were discouraged, but because you listened to what they said. And you're just like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) You went in happy and you came out sad. Why? Because you listened to them. It spreads. And that's what they're talking about. You've probably known people in the past 
who were walking with God at one point in their life. Michael W. Smith has a song, an old song about this. And now they're not. And if they talk to you, if you listen to them very long, you're tempted to discouragement. You're tempted to walk away like they did. And the writer of Hebrews says, don't do it. Don't follow that route of bitterness and discouragement towards God. There be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Esau is the group in Malachi's day who's saying it doesn't pay, we're out of here. Esau didn't value what was valuable, his birthright. So a little trial came along. He got a little hungry. Now give me a break. He missed a meal. I'm sorry. He missed a meal or two. And in the face of missing a meal or two, he loses all his endurance to hold on to something that's of inestimable value, his birthright, and he sells it for a little happy meal, for a little soup or stew. That's the picture here. So the writer to Hebrews is saying, don't be like Esau. You've got to have endurance because it's going to be tough at times. And you can put God and God and his things first and it's not going to guarantee a happy meal life. You've got to fix your eyes higher than the circumstances around you. You've got to avoid these embittered feelings, this disappointment with God. You've got to remain encouraged. And so let me close with this. You've got to have the long view. Your life and mine, the Christian life, is a marathon. And you know what God might write of your life and mine? He might write this. They remain faithful to the end and didn't get the promise. That might be your experience in life. But you know what? That's okay. Because Abraham's coming back. And Isaac, and Jacob, and Isaiah, and the guys that were cut in half, and the guys that lived in caves. And you know, when they come back, and God opens those books, and he says, hey, and I didn't forget what you did. They're going to have no regrets about hanging on, hanging upside down, waiting for Dad to see that Dad, I'm hanging on. Absolutely, it's recorded. It's not forgotten. We have got to work at being personally encouraged, staying encouraged. And this is something that we don't do alone. If you're isolated and if you're alone, I guarantee you'll get discouraged. Absolutely can't, can't be otherwise. You've got to try to remain encouraged, which means reading your Bible, guys. It means praying. It means staying close to God. It means doing things that you know will encourage you to keep going on. It also means, though, you've got to find people that you can encourage. This is a two-way street. They spoke to one another. I think it's interesting. Even they didn't get down on their knees, it says, says, and pray to God. This wasn't in their quiet time. They got together with each other and said, hey, we're going to stick this thing out. We're going to continue on. And for us, it's got to be mutual. It should start with us personally so that we bring encouragement to others. But it's got to be mutual and it's got to be two-way. We've got to work at being encouraged personally and we've got to work at encouraging others, being encouragement to others as well. Don't give up. Whatever your life is and however difficult it gets and however tempted you are to be embittered or disappointed with God because you're not getting out of life what you thought you would, Keep going. Finish the race. Revelation 22.12 says, I'm coming quickly. Jesus says. It won't be long. 
I'm coming in just a little while, and my reward is with me to give to each one according to what he has done. This isn't a threat. This is a promise. Jesus, the high king of heaven, says, guys, won't be much longer, and I'm going to come back. And when I come back, I've got my books so that I can reward you for all the ways you've been faithful to me in my absence. This is good. God does distinguish between the righteous and the unrighteous. It might not look like it in this lifetime, but it will be revealed in the future. And Christ says, I'm coming back. Hang on. My reward's with me. In this series about living counterculture lives, living against the flow and the tide of the culture, in which an easy, happy meal life is, is, is all the, the uh, expectation many of us have, we live counterculture lives and we love God when we persevere, endure, persevere in honoring Christ and trusting ourselves to His justice and judgment and then encouraging others to do the same. Let's pray. Lord, thanks that you not only keep our tears in a bottle, Lord, you not only know our our uh, disappointments and our hurts, but Father, you record our faithful deeds and faithful acts, and you don't forget a single one. Father, I pray that this passage in Malachi stirs us and encourages us to keep going on, to keep putting you first, to keep honoring you, Lord, just as your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, did. And I pray that we'll have his same outlook to lift up our eyes to Christ to endure, to lift up our eyes for the joy you've set before us that Jesus will return one day with his reward in his hand to give to each one to repay the acts of faithfulness here in his absence. God, it is easy to fall into the pit of despair and the trap of discouragement. I pray that you'll help each one of us determine, Lord, to do the things we need to do to be encouraged and then to reach out and to be an encouragement to each other. In Jesus' name, amen.